Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is going to be a two-parter. It's called Dancing with the Queen. Really stoked to roll this out. Um, this piece is published in Volume 22, which is the brand new zine. If you're a subscriber, it is going to arrive in your mailbox here shortly, if it hasn't already. And we're also doing a film component of this um, story. It's um, about a climb that myself and Dave Marcinowski projected for about five years. Not the hardest climb in the world, but it was quite difficult for us. And it made both of us kind of raise our standards for our climbing. And, you know, Pete Whitaker uh, of the Wide Boys came out later and actually onsighted the second pitch, uh, which was pretty humbling for both of us to see. But that's not really what matters. I think in climbing, it's our own personal journey that matters on a climb. And elevating our own standards and and putting something more into something that you get this reward out of it and it's a very personal thing and that's what the queen was for us so you don't want to spoil the essay if you want to read it first um, wait till you get a copy of volume 22 you can do that by going to our online store we've got a little link with a discount code for 15 percent off in our show notes and the other real message I have here is to, if you really dig the podcast, if you're more of a podcast person than a zine person, you know, with each podcast, it's free and, um, you know, we have a little bit of sponsor support. But we also need additional support. If this is your thing, check out our Patreon link also in our show notes. That's a great way to support the podcast. If you want to see this going, times are crazy. Our print costs have doubled. So there's really a need for our subscribers and our support base to step up and keep this zine dream alive. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days, they make unquestionably the most high-quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners, and really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. This episode is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. Kilter board has innovative light-up holds, progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from, with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer homeboard layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos, and even add your own. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the Climbing Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of southwest Colorado, 
and the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. For more information, check out osprey.com. All right, this is going to be a two-parter. This is part one of Dancing with the Queen. It started with hope. It started with hope. Michael Jordan from The Last Dance. In my body, I'm a climber. In my imagination, I'm a rapper. The poets of my generation are MCs, embodiments of the modern American dream. And the music of hip-hop is so ubiquitous with our culture that it's hard to imagine life without these MCs. I don't just listen to hip-hop. It bleeds into my soul. All music does, really. But there's something about hip-hop that gets me fired up like nothing else. The visualization of success. The Jay-Z, make room for me world because I'm here. Well, I love that mindset, that human will. Climbing demands confidence, but a different type of confidence. Not necessarily the Jay-Z confidence, but maybe the Kendrick Lamar type. Jay-Z would never directly tell us he was depressed. He makes the song cry, but Kendrick would. Is our generation the first one to really be open about this mental health stuff? By the way, I think all young people, myself included, are the same generation. I don't believe this XYZ millennial bullshit, but I'll elaborate on that another time. Or you can read Kurt Vonnegut's insightful thoughts on the subject. Though I've reached the lowest lows of depression when I was young, I honestly thought I would never go back there again. And I haven't. But depression kept up on me these last couple of pandemic years, and I knew I needed to act to remedy it. The heaviness would usually hit me at night. During the morning and day, I'd stay busy with climbing, getting out in the local trails and my work. But in the evening, life felt empty, sad, and isolated. I was recovering from a breakup, and I was also facing the reality of going from working at home to living at work. That and the weight of the world, well, it weighed heavily on my mind, body, and soul. Usually I roll out on a Friday and try to get there before it gets dark, and the chances of hitting a deer or a cow increase greatly. By morning, it's practically guaranteed the blood will be on the road with the carcass just off the side. The older I get, the more I dislike driving at night, even though my forerunner is equipped with a deer killer on the front. One of those saved me, one time when I hit a deer going 60 on my way home from the Black Canyon back in my gunny days. I hate the fact that my escape requires fossil fuels, but I feed the beast. I need the beast. I'm no younger, young, and idealistic. I'm in my 40s and realistic, but I still have hope. Well, better said, I know where hope is. And hope lies at the end of this drive at the trusty campsite so far back a dirt road, I can almost guarantee no one but my friends will be there. Sometimes heading into the creek, I'm all fired up about the project I've been working on for damn near five years. But these days, on a Friday evening, I'm often thinking about the calmness of sleeping in the desert. I'm pretty basic when compared to a lot of other climbers these days. I just sleep in the back of my truck, one that has zero conversions for camping. Then again, I'm a work bag these days working during the week and climbing on the weekends. To be honest, I love the balance. And even though I'm roughing it while camping, I know at the end of every climbing trip, 
as a bed waiting at home for me in my condo. By the time I hit my favorite dirt road in the world, which is more of a wash than a road, the vibes of the music have usually changed from Kendrick or Jay to the Grateful Dead or Bob Dylan. I've been coming back to this zone for years. For the first few years, I was hungry for first ascents, but soon one climb consumed me, a laser one-inch crack that could stack up with any splitter on the planet, and Dave and I had it all to ourselves. Sometimes things line up so well in life, and sometimes it seems like God, or whatever you want to call her, is against us. But in this little corner of the universe, and what is now, again, Bears Ears National Monument, God was on our side. My buddy Adam Farrow had actually discovered this climb, and I was so obsessed about it that years later he had to remind me that it was he who actually found it. Obsession can askew the brain. All I know is that for several seasons straight, Dave and I were obsessed with what would become Purple Rain or The Queen. If you know me, you know about this obsession. For years, people would ask me about how it was going, expecting to hear that I got it done. But at last, I'd tell them I was stuck in the dreaded one hang space. If you've projected, you know this space. Our routines before every attempt became more specific as time went by. First, the trail had to break in. We found the coolest way to go through these massive boulders, ones that would leave Chris Schulte drooling. One of them we called the biggest boulder in the creek, which somehow barely was situated on a chunk of rock destined to collapse and roll down the talus someday. But that boulder still stands, and it almost seems suspended in time a miracle of sorts. Once we walked by that, the rituals began. The first ritual was finding a cool-looking rock and adding it to the stack of rocks we dubbed the Friendship Cairn. The bands of rock we hiked through had some really cool petrified wood and crystal-like rocks that apparently flew out of a volcano eons ago in the Abajo Mountains. I always stayed a prayer in tension at this cairn, located on a plateau, which we labeled Phase 3 in the hike. Most creek hikes are short, but this one is about an hour or so, the reason why these cracks are now just getting climbed. When we arrived at the cliff, both Dave and I would unpack our gear at the same spot every time. We'd do the same warm up every time. A combination of two routes, Shorty Got Low, a fun little hand crack, and the pond, a varied crack system. Dave would usually do three laps, and I would do two. Then we'd crank some music and tape our fingers. The second pitch, the crux of the route, was so steep that it often make our tape roll on our fingers, which is a miserable feeling and basically shuts down any attempt. So Dave suggested we put super glue on each end of the tape and it worked perfectly. Usually we'd each slam a Yoruba Mate and buzzing from excitement and the caffeine, we'd start up the climb. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The last ritual was to hold what we called the Moki Ball a basketball-sized rock that must have came out of a volcano, too. Supposedly it had crystals inside, but we never dared to break it. We held it for good luck, and then the pregame rituals were complete. I can't recall exactly how many times we did this ritual, but I do know that if either of us missed a step, things felt off. Perhaps the more we tried it, the more superstitious we became. To quote Michael Scott from The Office, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. 
The only difference in our ritual was near the end, I would do some warm-up fingerboarding at the base of the root. The queen is gently overhanging, so I really felt it helped to put some pressure on the fingers before embarking on it. I've noticed that everyone seems to warm up a little differently. We were out there pushing ourselves for years on this rig. After many seasons of failure, I realized I needed to start training specifically for this climb. I've never really been into training, more just into the act of climbing, but soon the training became really fun. I learned crack climbing exercises from local hardman Marcus Garcia, and during the early lockdowns of COVID, I would put all my energy into the garage sessions, getting way too amped for hangboarding, which eventually led to a finger injury. I also reached out to Pete Whitaker, one of the best crack climbers in the world, and asked him for some beta on training. He sent me a series of lock-off workouts and told me to do them until failure. I couldn't do a single one, but I got the concept and modified them to suit my needs. During that early 2020 time period, when it seemed like the sky was falling and the Rona was going to get us all, like many others, I found myself watching more Netflix. And through the documentary, The Last Dance, I rediscovered my childhood hero, Michael Jordan. As a kid growing up in Illinois in the 1990s who loved basketball, Air Jordan was an obvious hero. I even had the fortune of attending his basketball camp in the suburbs of Chicago, just a couple blocks from my grandmother's home. That was probably the peak of my time playing basketball. It was awe-inspiring to hear Mr. Jordan talk about the game and to be in his presence. The biggest star in the world, my hero, and the hero to all kids, was there, right in front of my eyes. My basketball career never took off. I wasn't good enough to make the high school team, so I abandoned those dreams. Watching The Last Dance brought back all the excitement. I was surprised because for the last 25 years, I could have cared less about ball sports. I preferred nature sports where one competes with themselves. My best climbing always takes place when I am only in competition with myself. The story that The Last Dance told transcended so much. And to my surprise, I found a deep well of inspiration from MJ in the 1990s Bulls. Success comes from pain, dedication, failure, hard work, and a love for whatever craft you're practicing. Plus, during the early lockdowns, this gave me a place to escape to within my head, just as basketball itself did when I was a young teenager playing in my driveway. The other motivation factor for me was father time. I turned 40, and rather than seeing declines in my climbing, I was seeing gains. So was Dave. We were both getting better at crack climbing, and we had our magnum opus to motivate us and to continue to improve together. This was just after Kobe Bryant and his daughter died in the tragic helicopter accident. I wasn't into basketball when Kobe was playing, but I soon went down the rabbit hole about learning about him. In The Last Dance, he talked about people who wanted to debate whether he was better than MJ. He hated that because the basketball player he would become was in part due to Jordan's mentorship. What you get from me is him, Kobe said. I watched Jordan's tearful speech at Kobe's memorial and cried along with him. All of that made me love Jordan more, how human he was. Then I learned I shared a kinship with Kobe as well. After he retired from basketball, he became a storyteller. Unlike many professional athletes, who don't know what to do after they retire. Kobe knew exactly what he wanted to do. He even won an Oscar for his animated short film, Dear Basketball. 
If I'm looking for inspiration these days, I often turn to Kobe's interviews near the end of his career and in his retirement. I was not born to be an athlete that performed in front of an audience. Perhaps many of us climbers are that way. I also love that the hardest crack climb I'd ever tried was so far away from where other climbers were. For some reason, I'm able to try the hardest and quiet my ego when no one but my partner and the birds are watching. Usually, it was just Dave and me, and on occasion, another friend or two. We wanted to document it. We'd have photographers and filmmakers out there from time to time, but never felt any pressure other than the pressure I would put on myself. My favorite climbs to really push myself are first ascents. Not just for the obvious glory of establishing a new route, but also for the freedom of trying hard without the confines of a grade or established beta. I understand why Chris Sharma and Tommy Caldwell had an era in the early 2000s when they didn't rate their climbs. I also love trying hard with Dave. Maybe we were just perfect climbing partners for this moment in time, but there's something about him that inspired me to try my hardest. Well, he stayed with me through my failures. For a while there, Dave and I were neck and neck. Our fitness was almost exactly the same. Then, during 2020, Dave pulled ahead. He was able to get out more than I was, and I also had injured myself while being an overstoker in the garage on the hangboard. By a twist of fate, I wasn't on the other end of the rope when he sent the crux second pitch. I'd gone sport climbing that weekend, and he went out to the creek. When I returned that evening, he was getting ready for a shower beer. I got a text that he'd sent it. There was zero envy. I was only proud. He even sent me a short video some friends had taken. The scream that he let out the anchors was classic Dave. A yell of excitement and electricity as he mumbled with disbelief. I did it. I did it. All right, that was part one of Dancing with the Queen. We'll have part two in your podcast feed here shortly. Music from this episode comes from Devin Dabney and uh, a lot of my inspiration from hip-hop and uh, the intersectionality uh, with climbing and hip-hop comes from, um, is inspired by conversations I've had with Devin and he wrote a really great piece in volume 20 called Get Sends or Die Trying and he's working on a sequel to that too. So be sure to check that out in volume 20. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich and signing off from Durango, Colorado. I'm Luke Mihal. Peace.